Have you traced any of the um, of the cases that you talked about to look at the long term consequences of people who the the law glimpsed for a second and then that moved out of sight? I think one of the most interesting cases that I looked at in preparation for this, sort of following your example, was the was the Annette's case because. Mm. The interesting thing about the Annette's case is that when it was initially argued in the courts, it was argued with what we call assumed facts, and that is it was never fully tried with evidence because the courts were really just concerned about determining a legal principle. So there were a very short number of agreed facts, and that was the story that I'd always told when I taught the case. And I certainly wasn't aware that there'd been such a lengthy process that it was highly controversial. The Annette's parents, I don't think, ever accepted the coronial inquest. They didn't think that the death was accidental. Certainly some of the press coverage at the time suggested that they thought more nefarious things had occurred, that there might have been criminal intervention. I mean, what what actually happened that day never became known. It's certainly clear that they battled... I mean, they battled on such a long time mm. to think that it was almost 20 years before the, the case actually resolved itself. But also, I mean, I was never aware that they had had two cases to the High Court. I mean, to think that they had to fight twice mm. and fight the first time all the way to the High Court so that they could have their own counsel give finalising submissions at the coronial inquest. I, th- I mean, I thought that was just a, an amazing part of the, the story. One thing I say to students when I'm teaching these cases is what we're talking about is the worst thing that happens in people's lives. We tend to tell the stories, you know, we'll, we'll give like the briefest snapshot of facts because we're not that interested in the facts, but it's really the story of suffering that matters and that's what we really actually think about when we do compensation system research. We start to think about, okay, what kind of system best responds to the fact that someone suffers and their family suffers for, for the entirety of their of their lifetime. Mm. The other thing is the the Yanson Coffee case. I mean, the, certainly I only I gave a little snapshot of the other things that happened to her. That's always when I'd heard that spoken about before. Um, the usually says something like she had experienced a traumatic life. Well, if you go back to the trial decision and the appeal decision, which I'd certainly never mm. read before mm. now, it was an enormous life of mm. of trauma. And it also struck me when I was looking at it, she had a three-month-old baby at the time this happened. So, you know, probably even thinking around postnatal depression and those sorts of things and what might trigger that was was mm. never looked at. Mm. So, you know, I think it's I'm, – I'm glad for your work and, you know, I think it's it's a real gap that we often – we mm. don't know and we don't mm. follow the, the full story mm. of what happens mm. to people. Mm. I might say that, um, you know, as well as being a, a, an important legal story, this is – this is my book is a work of Australian history. It's a work of Australian history where the law intersects with day-to-day events, but it required the use of traditional kind of historical tools, including primary source documents and uh, and, and archival materials. Some of you might know that I've recently been involved in a campaign to provide emergency funding for our embattled national archives. And um, the Brilliant Boy relies heavily on the records of the High Court that the National Archives has been good enough to, to maintain. I went to Canberra to, to sit in the reading room to go through the appeals books and the, and, and the letters books of the, of the High Court during the 1930s. These are absolutely invaluable resources that we sometimes neglect, but maybe we take for granted they're always going to be around. It actually takes an active preservation and foresight 
by people who are involved in, in this area to ensure these records are, um, are available to us. That's why, as you can see on my T-shirt tonight, some of you might have seen in the background, I'm a member of the uh, Archives Liberation Front, uh, <laughs> who are vigilant in our protection of Australia's primary documents. I just thought I'd bring that to your attention. It's a, it's a constant... It's a constant battle to look after those things that we take for granted that we don't know when they're going to be useful. Some way, some down down the track, someone is going to want these things. It just so happened that in this case, it was it was me looking for uh, for, for the records of the High Court in the 1930s and actually disinterring the, um, the the Corbyn judgment, which I referred to earlier, which is an unreported judgment. It's not on any other legal database. I came across it when I was going through um, Owen Dixon's diaries. And he referred to a case, he actually misspelled the name. He spelled it C-O-R-B-I-N. And I thought, I've never heard of that case, and I can't actually find it on, on Osly. And I, um, I got in touch with the High Court, and they said, oh, it's this particular case, it's unreported, but you might be able to find it in the National Archives. And it actually turns out to be this fascinating sort of phantom twin of, of Chester's case that anticipates many of Everett's concerns, has a similar kind of repertoire of, of uh, legal precedence and, um, and it expresses in a lot of ways Ebert's own abiding frustrations with, uh, with the status quo in, uh, in, in law, which he uh, finds an outlet for in, uh, in, in Chester. Can I just say that, you know, protect your local archive. It's, it's, it's important. It's important not just for you, but for, uh, for, for generations hence. There was one thing I particularly wanted to comment on because it was important to me when I was researching and it was really following some of the material mm. that came out in the book, and that was to name people mm. and to use their names. Certainly in, in feminist tort theory and feminist analysis of judgments, we've often talked about the fact that women are not named, that they're often... So Mrs Chester is referred to as Mrs Chester mm. as opposed to her name, and I actually found it... Deeply sad mm. that, that mm. when the case ran, she yes. was called Janet. In fact, their surname also wasn't Chester. They'd so anglicised their name yeah. when they came to Australia. Mm. So I think finding and calling people by their names, and I think there's a lot of sharing of judgments now, uh, and I'm noticing it particularly um, coming out of the UK and others, where people's names are used, or sometimes mm. obviously it's not their real name, they're mm. given a, a, a name, and it, it humanises the story and the suffering. Mm-hmm. I think one one approach to writing feminist judgments is often tell people's story first mm-hmm. and, and use their mm-hmm. their names. And I, you know, research the names of the Annettes mm-hmm. because I think it's important. It's about people suffering and that their story be mm-hmm. told with their name. It's actually one of the first things that we say in our um, in our courses with the judicial colleges, which Peter was a, was a part of, because you know, as journalists, as writers, we find. The, uh, the the language of you know, applicant and respondent and plaintiff and defendant a little bit alienating and confusing too. <laughs> a, a judge knows because they've sat in on the case who all these people are, but the reader doesn't. The reader has has no idea. Often the um, it's like getting a face full of mace when you uh, when you when you read a legal judgment. It's all <laughs> so terribly confusing and uh, and, and topsy turvy. Interesting. I would say that um, that I think that Everts is a very well written judgment. I think it's a very lucid judgment. I think it's a very accessible judgment. Even though the uh, the, the concepts that that Everts is using seem to be esoteric, he always finds a way to drag it back to a sort of a commonplace exposition. Even for someone like me who who hadn't done you know 
torts and hadn't, uh, never darkened the door of a university, <laughs> had no particular difficulty in, uh, in, in understanding it. And when I didn't understand it, I just rang up Mark Lunny from uh, the University of New England, who was uh, who's an outstanding uh, legal scholar and uh, who I'd like to... I think he's out there tonight yeah. watching us, and uh, I'd like to pay tribute to uh, to Mark as, uh, as, as my taut whisperer. 